is said to me Don't take to drinking, boy, that road don't lead nowhere And don't you ever let me hear you swear Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. Besides that website, you can also find the show on iTunes, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, the new Google Podcasts app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and on the Overcast app for iOS. Joining me today on location here in Pensacola Beach, Florida, my guest is a singer, songwriter, guitar player with over 2,500 performances in 19 countries during a 30-plus year career. Wow. He is a million-selling, Grammy-nominated country music artist whose songs have hit number one on the charts five times. Amazingly, he has had his songs recorded by Hall of Famers and Grammy winners in five different genres, including Travis Tritt, Timothy Schmidt of the Eagles, and more. He has also been a contributing author for eight books, and he received the prestigious Bob Hope Spirit of Hope medal from the USO following his 11 tours and over 150 performances for servicemen and women deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, and South Korea. You've been hearing a song of his called Drink, Swear, Steal, and Lie. It's my pleasure to welcome to now hear this entertainment, Michael Peterson. Hey, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, you read that exactly the way I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that's, boy, oh, oh boy, that, that's... An intro and a half, and wow. I say that in a complimentary way. Just, <laughs> well, thank you. You yeah. know, um, oh my gosh. I was thinking as you were reading it, you know, when you read it, it just sounds so like like it just, you know, I don't know, it's, it sounds like a, a book or something. But when you live it, it's just kind of one foot in front of the other and um, doing my best to, to move forward with my career and my life in a way that made sense to me. Well, thanks so much for sitting down to talk with me here today. Before we get off and running, let's first have you talk about that song of yours that was just playing called Drink, Swear, Steal, and Lie. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of funny stories about that song because when you, when you first hear the title, most people have said when they, when they first hear the title, um, it, it's a bit of a jolt. Like, well, wh- what, what kind of song must that be? You know, and it must I'm be sure. something that celebrates the, you know, the darker side of country music. Um, I, prior to the song coming out for 20 years, I'd been a youth pastor and a, a youth evangelist all across the, the world, you know, and, uh, you know, so to go to Nashville and have my first single be, uh, and first hit be, be a song called Drink, Swear, Steal, and Lie. You can imagine the phone calls I got from, uh, from youth pastor friends of mine and pastors who wondered if I, you know, if I lost my way. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it's funny. I remember saying to one guy one day, I said, well, you know, he was just really ripping into me about, you know, like, you know, this whole topic. And I said, well, have you ever listened to the song? And he said, no, and I'm not going to. And I just thought, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you co- combat that? You know? So <laughs> it's a love song. It's a song that takes four things that you generally think of in one way and turns them inside out. So the chorus says, I'm going to drink from your loving cup. Swear I'll never give you up. Steal all your kisses underneath the moon. I'm going to lie here close to you. 
look what you made me do. Mm. Darling, wow. you're the reason why wow. I drink, swear, steal, and lie. Wow. So, um, That's it's cool. A, it's a wonderful song. It was the first big hit. Still to this day, it's probably my biggest airplay song, close to three million airplays. So. Wow. What, what, a, what a great hook. What a great angle that, that you took to that. It was fun. Made me laugh. You know, made you laugh when we were talking about it. You know, it's well, just to this be, day, it still works. Yeah, because you're right. You know, someone hears that title and they think, oh, this is, they just have this picture of revelry and, no. you know, where it's just, you know, a, a bender all night, you know, <laughs> know four o'clock in the morning. And I know. Quite the contrary. Well, we've got some glorious sunshine here in, in Pensacola oh. Beach today. Walk me through, me and the listeners, through, through the following, though. A couple of days ago, you were in Nashville, yeah. but you live in both Las Vegas and Branson, Missouri? Well, for the last two years, I lived in Branson and in Las Vegas. Uh, last December, I resigned from the show in Branson. So uh, I probably should have put that in my notes to you in advance. But Well, but um, what I was wondering was, you know, where are you from originally? Because yeah. how did you end up in Las Vegas and in yeah. Branson, Missouri? Well, I grew up in Richland, Washington, eastern Washington. Oh, the and, corner state. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I ended up in Vegas because it, Vegas reminds me a lot of where I grew up which a lot of people are now scratching their heads and saying, wait a minute, you said you grew up in Washington State. How does Vegas resemble Washington State? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but about two-thirds of the state of Washington is very arid, very dry desert. And so I grew up in uh, the Tri-Cities, right on the Columbia River, and it was not uncommon to have 105-degree mm. uh, temperatures there on summer days. You know, So uh, you know, six years ago, I guess now, um, my wife and I were in Vegas on a visit. And we, I looked at her and said, this is so much like where I grew up. And uh, she said, you know, would you ever want to live here? So we started talking about that. The next day we found a house. I mean, Were it was the two just of you living so in simple. Washington at that time? No, we were living in Tennessee. Okay. And uh, so I'd been in Tennessee for almost 20 years. And, you know, you know every once in a while it's good, to, it's good to change things up, you know. So I'd been in Tennessee for a long time. Nashville? Nashville, yeah. And... Um, so we moved to Vegas six years ago, and the first month that we were in Vegas, we, um, we, we were uh, privileged to be invited to attend a show called Raiding the Rock Vault. And at that point, it was a brand new show in Vegas. And about, is, uh, the basically, basic idea behind the show is uh, the greatest set list of classic rock music played not by uh, tribute artists, but by real rock stars. So you had the guitar player for Heart, Howard Lease. You had the drummer for Bad, Bad Company. You had, I mean, you, you get the drill, right? So bass player for Bon Jovi. I mean, these were all the real deal guys playing the greatest set list of hits from rock and roll. And I turned to my wife in the middle of the show, and I said, well, I just had the strangest feeling. I said kind of one of those, like, shivers run down my neck. And I turned to her, and I said, there's going to be a country version of this, and we're going to be in it. And uh, she looked at me and kind of smiled and said, okay. So uh, about 30 shows later, because we became big fans of this show, I just thought, I want to learn this. I want to study this and watch this. So we went, uh, you know, a lot of times. And uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe a year and a half before we went, maybe a year before we went to, uh, went to Branson, I said one day, I said, I'm, I'm going to meet the producer. So I looked up his name and found out his picture and started, uh, when I'd go to the shows, I'd see if he was there. And one night, he was there. So I just went up and introduced myself, gave him my card, and said, hey, if you ever start a country version of this, let me know. Wow. So he did. Uh, we did together. And uh, I put the band together along with uh, Kent Wells, who was Dolly Parton's uh, musical director. We put the band together. We moved to Branson. And so we didn't want to sell our house in Vegas because we love Vegas. And the only reason really I went to Branson was because I thought the show was going to migrate back to Vegas. 
so uh. that I'd be able to sleep in my own bed every night <laughs> and be part of the show. But, you know, it's not the way it turned out. Uh, so we stayed two years. I was the musical director of the show in Branson for two years. And uh, we just decided that, you know, there were other things for us. So we moved back to Las Vegas. But what I like about that story, a couple things. For those who are listening who are aspiring performers that listen to this show every week to learn from my, from my guests and from myself, number one, you know, that's kind of encouragement for you listeners that, if you know, if you have an idea, if you, have, I don't want to overstate it and say if you have a dream, but if you yeah. have a vision for something, follow through with it. And, and, and the, and the uh, you know, I always talk about my approach, which is the four yeah. P's approach, which is patient polite, professional, but persistent. Yes. And so here's Michael saying, I went show after show, kept looking for the producer, eventually found him. And, you know, and, yeah. it, and it boils down to something as simple as you don't know until you ask. You know, it's right. like anything else in the entertainment business. The worst they can say is no. Right. And you talk to the producer and eventually this relationship began and look at where it went two yeah. years. And, you know, it's been a habit for me. Sometimes younger people ask me, what, what are, how did you succeed, you know? And... Um, I think that you put your finger on it, the, the four P's, you know, patience, persistence, or the other two. Polite and professional. Polite and professional. So when I think back back to high school, I always did this. Um, I was a senior in high school, wanted to play college football. The school I wanted to go to wasn't recruiting me, so I got my coach, high school coach to write a letter and make a phone call to the head coach of that school I wanted to go to and set me up with an interview. So I went, to, went for my interview, and I ended up getting my full-ride scholarship and the thing is, is that uh, I just decided I'd recruit them, if, even if they weren't recruiting me, and it worked out. And, and in a sense, you know, you get to a certain point in your career, you think, well, you know, you've had the success. Why would you go out and, you know, hustle something else? Why would you, like, you know, hang out and try to meet this guy? Well, you're Michael Peterson or you're George Strait or whoever, you know. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not putting myself on a par with George Strait, but I'm saying when people reach a certain level of success, yeah. sometimes you can assume that they quit doing the things that got them there. And, uh, and I don't think that's the case. There's certain good habits. Well, and, you know, number one, I talk a lot on this show about th- this new economy, that nobody's doing just one thing. Yeah. And look at two weeks ago, I talked to Dave Jenkins from Pablo Cruz, mm. and he talks about how he plays with the American classic hit makers, and he plays with, with his wife, Jamie Kyle, sometimes. Mm. You know, nobody's doing just one thing. So to me, yeah. it's not unusual for you to sit there and tell yeah. me about, we saw this show, and I thought, hey, I want to yeah. meet the producer and see if maybe there's a country version of that, because yeah. nobody does just kind of do their own acting, right. and that's all anymore. So yeah. it's... It, it, I, I, I know that to the yeah. younger crowd, it does sound like, you know, well, he's Michael Peterson. With all that he accomplished, he doesn't need to do that. No, he doesn't need to. He wants to. No, you're exactly right. And the thing is, is that um, when you have an idea, act on it. Now, there's a great quote that says it's easier to steer a moving car. Huh. Right? Get going. Wow. Get going. Wow. You know, and it may not turn out the In fact, chances are it won't turn out the way that you thought it would. Most things in my life haven't turned out the way that I thought they would. Many of them turned out better. Mm. Well, here, here's another, uh, another teaching moment. So here we are at the Pensacola Beach Songwriters Festival. And listeners, by the way, if you didn't hear it, check out episode 224 from back in May when I interviewed Renita Cross, who runs this festival, which, by the way, is celebrating its 10th year here in 2018. Michael, you performed last night. You have, I believe, three more shows here still. Explain to the listeners, besides this great weather that we have here sure. in Florida, the benefits of performing at a songwriters festival different from the benefits of doing one night at a traditional venue. You know, traditional venues, um, well, let me say this. There's a lot of different kinds of venues. But when yeah. you think about a, a, a typical country music artist that's touring, the, the places you're playing are fairs, festivals, clubs, 
honky yeah. tonks or yeah. your own tour. Yeah. And um, for, for better or worse, often in those kinds of settings, the, the people that are buying tickets are coming. They're coming for a party, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you are the soundtrack for the party. Mm-hmm. So it's a different kind of listening. Right, you're with your friends, you're partying, you're having a good time. Everybody's talking. You got your beer up in the air, whatever. I mean, it's it's what you think, right? And when you think about, um, like for instance, I was stunned. We just got back from a month long tour in Europe, and uh, it's a very different kind of listening audience there. They come to listen. We had ten thousand people in Poland, and there were moments in the show you could have heard a pin drop. Wow. They just It's a different sort of culture over there. So there's different kinds of listening in different environments. Yeah, because if you play to a crowd of 10,000 in the States, they're going to be rowdy. They're going to be having fun. Right. It's, and it's you a would, Friday night out for them. Right. And you, and you would evaluate whether or not you're reaching them by the level of noise. Like the louder they get, boy, the, be- the more we got them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I remember our first night in Poland. I'm like, wow, everybody's so quiet. What, <laughs> are we not getting them? You yeah, know? yeah. And then I re- began to realize that the people really just, they really came to listen. So it's a different culture and different, you know, different listening culture in different uh, environments. So when you come to a songwriter's event, the, the presumed uh, protocol, if you will, is that you come to listen. And there's a thing that started years ago at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the premier listening rooms, if not the premier listening room in America. Um, and that was this whole thing where people put their one, their index finger to their lips and they say, shh, you know. And it was kind of, we joke about it, the, the shh culture, <laughs> you know. And the idea being that you had to, um, early on in listening environments, people were like, what's a listening room? We came out to drink beer and have beer with our friends and make noise. And so, you know, Amy, who started the, the Bluebird there, just said, no, we're going to change the culture. We're going to make it a listening room. Like, what's a listening room? What's where, you know, you come and to listen. And so, you know, she really, thanks to Amy, she really changed the culture around that. And that culture began to spread so that, you know, in those environments, people had the permission, if you will, to um, invite others to experience the music and not just be there for a party with the music as background noise. And so, you know, I'm grateful for that. And that's, what you, that's one of the premier things that separates festivals like this from, you know, a traditional listening environment like we talked about before, a club or honky-tonk or a fair festival, is that when people come here, they come to listen. Last night we were playing at Hemingway's, and the gal that introduced us reminded the audience before we started, shh, you know, be, be quiet. And come, really come, you know, not like you're being reprimanded, but more like, you're here to, to really listen. Well, and I think it's a nice education for the patrons to learn themselves about mm-hmm. this listening environment. The venue that I was at last night has for years at this festival been one that's not treated, it's not positioned as a listening room. Okay. And last night, everybody, round after round, everybody sat nice and quietly. And yeah. I was very impressed. And I thought, well... I think maybe this audience has been conditioned over the years to learn that it's better at a festival when it's a listening room environment and you get to listen to the songwriter. Uh And you can probably, I would imagine, you probably do a lot more and or deeper storytelling Mm -hmm. here at a festival than, like you say, when you played a traditional show in Poland. Yeah, when you're playing a traditional show, I mean, people sort of like, I remember one one time I was opening up for Merle Haggard. And uh, I think it was the first time that I opened up for him. Uh, and uh, I got up to the microphone, and uh, and my guitar wasn't working. I'm like, great. Oh boy! Right, I'm I'm doing a solo acoustic opening for Merle Haggard, and so they're trying to get the microphone working. So I'm 
I'm like talking to the mic, talking to the mic. You know, and it was like a scene out of a movie. Like, remember the Blues Brothers where they were playing in the bar and, uh, and there was a country music fans there and all they knew were blues. And so everybody started throwing bottles yep. at the chicken yep. wire and all yeah. that, you know. Yeah. So until <laughs> they, they sing, I don't forget what song they sing, Ring of Fire or something like that, you know. And um, um, that was, was the sort picture of a, you had yeah, in your Yeah, that head. was it because people, <laughs> a, a, one guy in the front looked like a biker guy. He stood up and he yelled at me, shut up and sing. And it was like one of those moments, like, I thought, oh, my God, here comes the bottles, you know. Um, and, it's, you know, people come to hear the music. Yeah. You know, they come to hear you talk. So, but it's a little different here. We get to get into a little more. And, and honestly, you know, people generally, I think, that are not um, hardcore music listeners. Like, there's hardcore folks like you and I, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they, what they hear when they listen to a song is a beat, maybe a little bit of the melody, and maybe the the voice, right? They're not really like looking deep into it like we do. So when you come to events like this, you you get a chance to really hear because you're specifically listening to the songs, and they're stripped away with nothing but a guitar and a voice or a piano and a voice. And you go, oh, I never knew that said that. Oh, that's cool. How? Wow, that's a great line. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a different experience, and I encourage anyone who you know is near a, a music songwriters festival to go because you, you'll Absolutely. have a blast. Yeah, I'll second that. Listeners, I'll be giving out Michael's particulars, his website, his social media, etc. In a bit, but wow, this this Florida trip is just the latest in a long line of shows here in 2018. A couple days after this episode comes out. Specifically, on October 19th, you will be up in Ontario, Canada, doing a show in Mississauga. Then on the 26th, another country, as you'll perform in Spain. Mm. Then back to the U.S. with shows in early November in Iowa and Wisconsin. And check this out, listeners. Last month, Michael performed in Georgia and California. Plus, he did dates this year in Germany, France, and as you heard him say, Poland, not to mention Pennsylvania and Arizona. <laughs> wow. Is, is mm. all this touring because of the album that you put out at the beginning of this year, or would you be on the road this much regardless? You know, uh, the, the fact that most of these dates are more music-centric is, I think, a lot to do because of the band. I have to give my hats off to... Uh, my hat off to, to Stephen McClintock from 37 Records because he had a vision for doing this record. This new album is a 20th anniversary commemorative record, if you will, of my first and most successful album on Warner Reprise 20 years ago. But, you know, he hired a full-time publicist, so I'm, I had the benefit this year of, of getting a lot of publicity around the record and, and, a, and a lot of really, really great reviews. And that's opened up opportunities for me to do more music. I, I'd have to say prior to being in Branson two years ago, you know, only about a third of what I did was specifically kind of music related. My wife and I, my wife's a retired U.S. Army colonel, and she's a disabled veteran and um, does a lot of speaking around the country around issues related to post-traumatic stress and something she calls post-traumatic growth, which is a really mm. cool thing. And um, and then the other third of the time that we spent uh, on the road was working with high school students. Um, I have for 35, almost 40 years now, done high school assembly programs all over the world. And our programs these days are really focused on uh, introducing young people to the passionate, exciting idea of, of how to take really great care of your brain and like what's really going on with your brain. Mm. And it centers around, without getting too deep into it, you know, sleep, nutrition, and activity. But, but to get kids excited and passionate about that, it's been shown, some real serious research has been done to show that students who get turned on to this idea improve their test scores, improve the quality of their social lives, improve their futures, and improve their health. 
But so then does it make a difference being on the road as much as you have been this year doing music instead yeah. of one-third, one-third, one-third in terms yeah, of... Yeah, it does. I'm doing more music. And, you know, I think Branson, I have to thank Branson for that. You know, we did four hundred over 400 shows in two years. Mm. And it just re-engaged for me how, how much I love performing music, you know. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like your hair growing. You don't notice the change. But over the years, I had started doing more and more things that were kind of, you know, music was a part of it, but it wasn't all about the music. Mm-hmm. So it's been fun to reignite that. Awesome. Listeners, I mentioned that Michael and I are on location at the Pensacola Beach Songwriters Festival. You know that a couple of my tour stops in 2018 have been Anaheim in January and Nashville in July for the NAM shows, thanks to Tascam. And hopefully you subscribe to the show and listen every week, which would mean that you've heard me talk all about Tascam. I hope that by now... You have checked out all their gear they have for musicians for any level, beginner, intermediate, advanced, touring pro, whoever. For this interview, I'm simply using my Tascam DR44WL handheld recorder, although I've got two Tascam TM60 microphones plugged into it for me and Michael rather than the built-ins, and I'm wearing my Tascam TH02 headphones. I don't think I can talk about it, but Tascam told me about something that they're aiming to release in December that I'm going to want to get my hands on as well. Check out their wide line of stuff at Tascam.com. If you're doing any kind of recording whatsoever, go look at T-A-S-C-A-M.com. Michael, I want to back up to having mentioned the whole Las Vegas Branson thing. In the case of the latter, you were the musical director for, and I want people to know this was the number one rated concert experience there, rating the country vault. And you started to mention it. For me, that brings back memories of episode 190 of this show that I recorded on location in Las Vegas with Laura Wright, who talked about having performed in rating the rock vault. She was a singer in that show. But I want you to explain to the listeners with regards to rating the country vault you know what that means when someone is the musical director of a show like that what their role you bet. is well it makes me think of a there you know uh there's a great one of the great songs maybe ever ever written was a, a song written by a guy named Artie butler a song called here's to life it was recorded by the great shirley horn and i got a chance to to hear Artie butler speak and perform that song maybe a month ago in vegas at a thing that you would be really interested to visit uh, if you're interested, I'll turn you on to it. This thing called the Composer's Showcase that happens hmm. in the uh, kind of in the Opera Hall in in Las Vegas at the Smith Center. Um, but he got up to uh, to, uh, to you know introduce a song and his thing, and he said, you know, he's a Jewish guy, so he's telling these sort of funny Jewish stories, and he says all his life his mom wanted him to be a, an MD, a doctor, you know, and so. Uh, you know, he was always afraid about, you know, upsetting his mom or disappointing her. So, you know, he became a musical director for all of these great acts and shows and stuff all over the world. So he said for 20 years, he told his mom he was an MD, <laughs> which, which I just think that made me laugh. Um, so that's my musical director is somebody who puts a show together, makes sure that, that uh, the band is where they need to be, when they need to be. It's sort of like, you know, being the manager, if you will, in a sense. Um, you know, really involved in, in helping to uh, uh, ensure a high level of performance. Um, make are sure you hiring and are, hiring and I'll say firing the musicians? Yeah, I did while I was there. Yeah, I mean, all the people that were in the band were people that, that uh, you know, I used my network to attract. But to ironically enough, for all that you've done, you, the musical director doesn't actually play with the band, correct? No, I did, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, in my case, I did. So I was a musical director and one of the cast members of the show. So Wow, wow, okay. I've had guests on this show before who have gotten Grammy nominations, but I don't think I've ever asked this question. I wonder 
how much pressure that puts on you anytime you write a new song. Does that set the bar high and you feel you have to try to get back there? Or is it a case of you just have to be thankful to be nominated, but leave that to the side and just try to write a great song, not with the intention yeah. of getting Grammy consideration? You know, the movie uh, about the um, the Jamaican bobsledders. I'm yeah, trying to remember yeah, the name yeah. of the movie. Cool Runnings, I yep. think it was called. There's yep. a great line in that where John Candy is trying to talk to one of the young bobsledders, um, try to explain to him why he cheated, you know. Uh, and um, and there's a great line in there. He said, the, you know, if I recall correctly, he said the lesson that he learned out of all of that, like he cheated to win, right? And then it destroyed his career. And he said, he looked at the young bobsledder who was wanting to win a gold medal, and he said the lesson that he learned was if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. Mm. Wow, and that's there's something about that that's always just resonated in my within me really. Um, the other thing that really I think of when you say that is, you know, often you'll hear people talk about the Medal of Honor, um, and and sometimes when you, you watch watch when you see this on news programs, often they'll mistakenly refer as they speak to it as they'll say gold uh, uh, Medal of Honor winners. Mm. But, but really inside that culture, if you get close to it, because I've had the privilege of doing that, they're, they're very, very specific and careful that they call them gold, or, uh, uh, Medal of Honor recipients. Because it's not something that you earn. It's an honor achieve. that's bestowed upon yeah. you. So when, you. when you talk about those kinds of honors like Grammy or number one records or gold records or whatever it is, you know, there's a lot of ways to look at that. And for me, as I've reflected on that over the years, um, first of all, that kind of uh, accolades is, is per, you know, it, it comes and goes. It's fluid, right? And, you know, you don't, very, very few people have that their whole career. So when you think about it in that way, what really occurs to me is um, be careful that you don't um, take unto yourself the honor that's given to the award. Mm. You know, um, th- there's something about sort of approaching it with a feeling of gratitude and and just you know gratitude that somebody thought that what you did was uh so wonderful that they wanted to recognize it so i I look at those things as recognitions not something to reach for or strive for although they benefit your career in many ways sure i think they're things that happen as a byproduct of doing great work so the focus for me has always been on trying to do great work and be grateful for any recognitions that come along the way because, you know, like John Candy said, the great philosopher John Candy, <laughs> if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. I like it. I like it. Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is when you are promoting something, a new video dropping, a Facebook Live, a TV appearance, whatever, don't leave out morning or evening and the time zone. I recently saw a short video someone posted on Facebook announcing that their YouTube channel was launching, quote, tomorrow at 1030, unquote. What this person failed to mention was, is that AM or PM and 1030 what? Eastern time, Central, Pacific? Give yourself the best possible chance at success by including minor details that could have a major impact. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. 
That's really great to know, isn't it? Very helpful, right? Bruce gives out a tip just like that on every episode of this show, and there's an easy way to get all those that he gave out over the first 160 episodes. The ebook series called Bruce's Bonus Book contains four volumes, and they're all available for purchase and immediate download at www.brucesbonusbook.com. Order yours now for helpful tips that you can apply to your career right away. Michael, when I talked about all the touring you're doing, I mentioned that you released an album early this year. Tell the listeners about that, including, I'm wondering if you record in Las Vegas or somewhere else. Thank you for asking that question. Um, the album w- came about as a, as a commemorative album f- to celebrate the 20th anniversary of, the, really I had one big record I- in country music on uh, Warner Reprise Records 20 years ago this year. So as the 20th anniversary was coming along, um, you know, opportunities to record a new, a new album that remembered that, those hits uh, presented themselves. So we put together, you know, we decided, you know, what should be on the album? You know, should it be all the songs from the first album redone? Nah, probably not. How about just the greatest hits from my first album? And because I was performing in Branson, uh, you know, there were 500 people to 1,000 people there a night. And I thought, well, I'm singing all these classic songs. You know, I sang in the show seven great country classics, you know, songs like Friends in Low Places or uh, Boy Named Sue, Wichita Lineman, uh, Hey, Did You Happen to See the Most Beautiful Girl in the World. I mean, these just classic, iconic yeah, songs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you had asked me or, you know, suggested that I should record an album that covered all of these classics uh, to, to five years ago, I would have said, no, that's insane. Like, who's going to cover Friends in Low Places? What are you, an idiot? <laughs> you know? But after I performed the songs 400 times, you know, I thought, I, I think I know who and, I am. And got the audience response that you yes. did, I imagine, had to be a part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of learned what these were for me. And, and, you know, the spirit in which that I made a decision to record these uh, cover songs, these iconic classics, was really in the spirit of um, reverence, if you will. Uh, maybe that's too strong of a word, but... But to honor, you know, those great artists who, who impacted all of yeah, our lives, yeah. whether it's Johnny Cash or Garth Brooks. And so, you know, it's, that's not meant to compete or say, hey, mine's better or anything. It's more really to say, hey, thank you, you know, tip my hat to these artists. And because I'd sung them so many times, I felt like I knew who I was. And, you know, we were going to be in Branson, I thought. So we were going to sell the album there in Branson. But as it turned out, you know, we're on the road now. And, and I, I, I've been really delighted to discover that, especially in Europe, people... We're excited to hear new versions of these songs. But were those live versions that are on the album, were those recorded in Branson? Those are, yeah, those were all recorded in uh, Nashville. Oh, in Nashville. So, yeah, and, you know, it's funny is how much the music business has changed. 20 years ago, I think we spent close to $350,000 to make my first album. People wonder, you know, what does it cost to make a record? Well, that's about what it cost back 20 years ago. Tell the listeners how how big my eyes are right now. Yeah, just, yeah, oh right. My gosh, I mean it's incredible. It's no wonder artists get sort of in unsupportable debts. Like you said, you said three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh yeah. You? Oh my. Yeah, gosh. and then the videos were hundred grand a piece. We did five videos. So before you know it, you're a million dollars in the hole. The record company, but that's another conversation for another day. <laughs> but but you know, so as a perspective, the reason why I brought that up is to say this. So we did this new album uh, in Nashville with many of the same players. Uh, that played on the first record wow. 20 years ago wow. and um, uh, in a great studio. And if you, if you put the new record up next to the old record, you, you wouldn't hear any difference in the money. 
But I, and I won't tell you what we made the new record for, but I'll say this. It was staggeringly, significantly <laughs> less amount of money than, than we made the first record for. And, um, you know, it's just sort of the nature of the business. Things are changing, and uh, things don't cost as much as they used to anymore. But I'm, I'm confused as to if you were doing the show night after night in Branson, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you just record the show, say, three, four nights in a row and say, this was the best version of this song, let's put that one on the album, this was the, and then go to Nashville and only, yeah. and only redo those few songs from, from 98? Um, that would have been a different kind of record. That would have been a live record, and I didn't want to do a live album. Uh, okay, okay, mm-hmm. okay. Well, listeners, again, I want, I want to make sure, you're, make sure you understand, though, the songs that Michael's talking about that were on his album in 1998, they did redo those. Yeah, we redid new versions of Drinks for Still in Life, From Here to Eternity, Too Good to Be True, and When the Bartender Cries. Those were my probably my arguably my four most recognizable hits on the radio. That's neat. And then the other songs, uh, the other seven songs, are the songs from the Branson show. But I mean, it's been super well received. Um, my version of Wichita Lineman, um, just as of I don't know, maybe two months ago, had a six week run at number one on the European mm. uh, Country Music Top Forty chart over there. So you know, it's just being really, really super well received. Outstanding. Shame on me. We're on episode 245, and yet I don't think I've ever asked this question before to a songwriter guest. Back in the intro, I mentioned that you have had songs recorded by Hall of Famers and Grammy winners. Obviously, here at a songwriters festival, you will perform all kinds of songs that you've written. Mm -hmm. But at a traditional Michael Peterson show, like we were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. are you allowed to perform those songs that you've written for these other artists or is it a case of once they're recorded by someone of that stature they ask you not to perform them yourself and and maybe you're even compensated for that exclusivity Hmm. no i've never run into that nor have i ever heard anybody else um being sort of held to that uh protocol you know the thing about a song is is um even even from a legal standpoint, people wonder sometimes. You know, if I'm going to make an album, I, let's say let's say you're li- one of the listeners right now, and you're saying, "Man, I love George Strait. I want to do a George Strait album. All my favorite George Strait songs." You know, how do I do that? What do I have to do? And uh, you know, do I have to pay somebody for that? And well, the really simple protocol is this: um, once a song has been recorded and released commercially in the United States, anyway, it's different part different parts of the world. But you don't need to ask permission anymore. So let's say if you and I wrote a song right now, and uh, somebody, uh, you know, a listener, uh, let's say I played a brand new song I just wrote with you on the radio, and somebody said, hey, I want to record that song. They would have to have permission from us and from the publisher legally before they could do that. But if I recorded the song and released it commercially, after that they don't need permission anymore. But they still have paperwork they have to do. So you'd get a hold of a, a licensing company like Harry Fox or Bug Music, and you would, you'd say, hey, I want to record these songs. I want to put them on a record. Then they would say, well, how many units are you planning on selling? How many are you going to print up to begin with? And you'd pay you know, the mechanical fee for that, which you know, at this point is a little less than 10 cents per song. So if you did an album of 10 songs, you'd have to include in your budget an extra dollar, so to speak, roughly a dollar. Uh, in your cost. So if it costs you two and a half bucks to make your CD and package, add an extra buck for what they call mechanicals, which mm-hmm. basically ensures that the publishers and the writers get paid. Yeah, and I think what I was getting at was when you hear a name like Travis Tritt mm-hmm. that, that you've had a song cut by, 
Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, about branding and image and for, and I don't mean Travis Tritt, but someone of his stature to say, well, wait a minute. I know this guy wrote it, but he's out there doing that song in his yeah, concerts never run and, into that. And, and for audience members to say, oh, why is this guy doing a Travis Tritt song? Well, it turns out I'm the one that wrote it. That's why yeah, I'm doing it. Right. Exactly. And so I didn't know if, if, if an artist might say, hey, look, I am at the level of a Travis you know, Tritt. Never, I don't... I, yeah. Yeah, it just occurred to I me. Just, I yeah, just, it's, a, it's a really good question. Yeah. It's an intriguing question. But, you know, there's an old saying that sort of makes me laugh all the time. It says, the only bad publicity is your obituary. <laughs> right? So if you're Travis Tritt and, if I, and I'm playing a song that you recorded and was a big hit for you, um, you know, people are talking about Travis Tritt. Well, and I, w- I would much think that he'd be more concerned about the guy who's just massacring his songs at some sports yeah. bar on the beach as opposed to the guy that wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, I've never run into that. So I don't know. Maybe if you asked them and gave them the option, they might. But it's never <laughs> been an option. I'm talking today with singer, songwriter, guitar player Michael Peterson. Visit his official website at michaelpetersononline.com. Social media-wise, look for Michael on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. His CDs, along with DVDs and other merchandise, are available on his website. You can also download Michael's music from iTunes. As I mentioned before, Mississauga, Ontario, he is coming your way on October 19th. Since now here this entertainment has gotten listeners from 135 countries around the world, I will say that for our listeners in Spain, look for Michael in Santa Susana on October 26th, Des Moines, Iowa, November 4th, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, November 9th. Go to michaelpetersononline.com to keep up with where and when you can go see him yeah. perform live. Did you want to say something about those dates? Well, the, uh, the, and I should have, I should have uh, offered this earlier, but the Mississauga date got canceled. Ah, so for, okay. for a number of reasons, they're going to reschedule for another okay, time. Okay, well so then uh, keep the up with him online to see happen, so. when it gets rescheduled for. Yeah. If you dig listening to this show, if you enjoy what I bring to you each week on NHTE, I would love your support through our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash NHTE, or just go to the show website, nhte.net, and click on the Support Us on Patreon button. It's a lot of work for me. It's a lot of time. There's definitely some expenses that I could use help with. Please consider what you might be able to afford through the Patreon campaign. Michael, as if all the songwriting you do isn't enough, you've been a contributing author for eight books. Yeah, you know, it's uh, along wow. the way. I've just had the opportunity to to uh, be a part of of some things that were outside of the music business lane, if you will. And uh, you know, the funny thing is about creative people. I don't think any any creative person that I know is just creative in one area. You know, they like to create. I mean, some of the best painters I know are some of the greatest songwriters I know. Mm. You know, and so um, it's been fun to be a part of these. There's a project of yours, Moving People. What is that? Well, you know, years ago, um, I think it was the great Duke Ellington who uh, got dropped one day by Columbia Records. And they said, well, you're not selling any records. And there's a great quote from Duke Ellington. He said, well, wait a minute. And I'm paraphrasing. Um, I I thought it was my job to make the music, and I thought it was their job to sell the music. Wow. Right? (laughs) And so... um, you know, that really got me thinking. The more I thought about that, I thought, you know, as, as careers have ups and downs, which, you know, mine has had as anybody else has, has had, um, you know, record companies, you come and go. I've, I've had three major record deals. You know, you're in and you're out of these moments. And I just reflecting on that, that quote from Duke Ellington, I just thought, you know, people don't buy stuff unless they're moved to do so. And so... Really, over the years, I've seen myself less and less as, you know, 
a one sort of one trick pony you know mm-hmm. well i'm a singer no really my my passion and my joy is around doing things that connect me with people or if you want to put it another way moving people so it always made sense to me that you know if somebody heard me as a speaker and they really enjoyed it they might discover the music if somebody heard me as a singer they might discover the books if some you know and that to, to me all just makes good sense if you're thinking about a building a business yeah yeah so it really you know one day it occurred to me that my initials were MP and that my mission was to move people. And I thought, I like that, moving people. Of course, you know, over the years I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, when I could show up at their house with a truck. You know, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so that can get a little confusing. But, but so really my mission has been um, really for, for whatever time that I have on this planet just to try to be available to make contributions into people's lives. That's really the heart of moving people is finding those intersections where um, whatever I have to offer meets other people's need. You know, there's a lot of people trying to be famous and a lot of people trying to make money and there's nothing wrong with any of that. That's mm-hmm. all a good thing. But for me, I found it wasn't, it wasn't enough. Really, at the end of the day, the core of the day, I felt like I have a calling. I have a, there's a reason why I've been given these talents and, this, my, and my health even. Is because I'm not just here for me. Yeah, God bless you. So trying to find ways to connect with people, and sometimes it's a speaking engagement for students. Sometimes it's, you know, it's playing music and making people laugh. Sometimes it's writing a book. God bless you. Multiple ways of moving people. Well, and I thought of that. You know, if you consider getting back to the whole songwriters festival concept, when you're on stage and you are at liberty to talk a lot deeper about the songs, somebody might book you for a speaking gig and say, "I like the way this guy tells stories. I wonder if he. I wonder if he does. You know." So, I mean, one definitely plays into the other, and and you can see all that. Uh, By the way, right about now is when I would usually talk about Boulder Creek guitars. I'm actually wearing my Mm. Boulder Creek guitars T-shirt right now, and I've got my Boulder Creek guitar back in my room, but. Uh, Michael, just like Lee Bryce, just like players from Fleetwood Mac, players from Three Doors Down, you too play Boulder Creek guitars. I do. <laughs> he's got it. He's got right one here. of his Boulder Creek guitars with him. Yeah, incredible guitars. Really, just love these guitars. They, um, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners are wondering. Well, you know, you go to a guitar store and there's a hundred different brands. Like, how do you know what to, what to buy? You know, I've been I've been a touring musician for thirty years. And I, I, there seemed to be a correlation for me anyway between the, more, between the, the price of a guitar and how fragile they were. Like the more you paid for a guitar, the less likely you were to want to take it on the road. Wow. Right, because if you pay $5,000 for you know, a brand new, whatever brand you, you want to fill the blank hey, with. You'll never want to take it out of your who, house. Who, yeah, who wants to take that on the road, right? So, I mean, I have, I have close to 30 guitars. Wow. You know? And, uh, and I have, you know, some of the common names you might think of, you know, um, that I don't take on the road because they just, you know, they, they're fragile, mm-hmm. you know. So um, the thing I love, there's a lot of things I love about Boulder Creek guitars. First of all, I have the two of these, I have four Boulder Creek guitars, but the two jumbos in particular, I, they never met a PA that they didn't <laughs> like. And I'm, I mean that, I, pl- I plug into any PA and people engineers particularly will go like wow that guitar sounds so great mm. so something about the the shape of the guitars the engineering of the guitars and the pickup that they just sound and i don't have a lot of p- pedals i'm playing through so they just sound great first of all on every p that i play on um the second thing is um that they're sturdy 
Like this guitar, you know, it's sort of like the Timex. Mm. You remember the old Timex yeah, commercial yeah. takes a licking and keeps on ticking? Yep, yep. You know, I mean, hey, let's face it. All you have to do is look at your guitar case when you get off an airplane. You get your guitar baggage claim. It tears in the hair. And the, you know, it's not like they're treating with kid gloves all the time. Yeah, so these guitars are really sturdy, you know. The third thing that really been stuck out to me about Boulder Creek guitars, everywhere I go, and I mean literally everywhere that we play, people stand back and they say, wow, what, what, tell me about that guitar. What is that? Because it doesn't look like a typical guitar. Yeah. The sound hole's in a different spot. Um, there's a nice big uh, listening hole on the top of it, which people say, well, what's that for? I say, well, that's how you put your beer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, they're beautiful. And it's such a fun feeling to tell people about these guitars. Somebody said, well, what makes them so different? Well, one of the things that makes them different is the, the bracing on the face of it is all suspended. And when they said to me, it's suspended bracing, I said, what do you, what do you mean suspended? Well, you know, if you think about, if you mute, if you were to lay your hands on a piece of wood and expect it to vibrate, it would be muted, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when you have braces against the face of any kind of wood, no matter what kind of wood it is, you're dealing with the issues of resonance, right? So one of the genius ideas that Boulder Creek Guitars came up with and patented is this idea that if you could suspend the braces so that the entire brace isn't against the face, right? And if you would just use as your braces, uh, sort of imagine the metal that you might use in a wind chime. Highly Mm. vibrational, right? So let's get some highly vibrational metal. Let's suspend it. And then you get this incredible resonance that happens in your guitar. So it's like people play this guitar and they just go, wow, that's an incredible guitar. Where do you get them, you know? And I always tell them, just go go to Boulder Creek online. You can find them or go to your local guitar uh, store, guitar center, and and demand if they don't have it that they send you one. Yeah, and listeners, go to bouldercreekguitars.com. It's B-O-U-L-D-E-R, bouldercreekguitars.com, and they do have a section of their website regarding dealers so that you can... Look and see uh, how and where you can get one. Michael, we're about out of time, but I wanted to make sure to give you time to talk about all the shows that you've done for servicemen and women Mm. since that's obviously a real big thing to you. Yeah. You know, from 2005 to 2014, probably, I guess, um, I did an awful lot of stuff. We did 11 tours, major tours, to uh, areas where service members are deployed. Korea, Alaska... Uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, you know, all over the Middle East, a bunch of different countries, Africa. Mm. And, you know, probably the biggest lesson that I, that I learned personally from doing that was that uh, this is a simple reminder that, you know, when you ask yourself, what can I do to help? You know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, that quote from Teddy Roosevelt really resonated in me. He said, everyone is, has a responsibility which is a big word. We have a responsibility to do what we can with what we have where we are. Mm. And for me, I've always been a singer and communicator. So, you know, being over there and having a chance to play for, for service members. The other thing that really, really changed me, and we did over 150 performances in, in deployment areas wow. and had some crazy experiences shot at and bombs going off. And, you know, the, the thing that really stays with me out of all of that is you know, you think about a show, you know, you think of a normal show, it's sort of like the artist gets introduced and walks out on stage and says, here I am, you know. And and I discovered over there that, you know, most of the, by the time I was touring over there, most of the young people that were there were in their early 20s, some of them even in their teens. Mm. 
And they might have been four or five years old when I had hit records. So they did not necessarily know who I was, you know. And I, I just, you know, so all of the show business kind of goes out of it. Unless, it, and if you tried to make that happen, it felt kind of forced. So I just, just, just decided, you know, let's not make a big show out of it. Why don't you put me in the dining facility? Wow. So I started setting up in the DFAC, you wow. know, the dining facilities. And I wouldn't have, nobody would introduce me. There was no lights, no big show. I just a guy sitting on stage playing a, playing a PA, you know, uh, playing a guitar wow. through the PA. And for the people that were in the dining facility. And it sounds kind of like, well, wasn't that beneath you? No, what I discovered was that we had a lot more people showed up at the shows. Um, and people kind of came and went. It, but people showed up because they were there to eat. They wouldn't have been there otherwise. And what it made me realize was, you know, in that kind of a place, instead of walking on stage and saying, here I am, really you walk on stage and you say, hey, there you are. And there's a real difference when you think about it, the difference between and here how. I am and there you are. Mm. And, and the there you are approach for me, I, I just found felt better to me. And it, and it connected better with the audience because they could feel that sense of you're here for us. And, and uh, if we could just make them laugh a little bit, um, see their shoulders drop a little bit, then that was really what it was all about. It changed me as a performer. Beautiful, beautiful. We're going to close today with a song of yours called From Here to Eternity. Before we let you go, tell the listeners all about this song, please. Uh, yeah, From Here to Eternity was a song that was written uh, to aid uh, young men uh, who were about to pop the question but were really nervous, maybe too nervous to even get the words out. <laughs> really, that's the way we wrote it. We said, you know, never been a proposal song. I said a lot of wedding songs, but I never heard a, like the, a song that actually popped the question. Yeah. So we thought if we could do that, we would be assisting thousands of young men across the country. <laughs> and as it turned out, that's how it got used. So it's 20 years old this year. Uh, as a, It was my first number one hit as an artist and a writer. And... Um, you know, tens of thousands of, of young men have used this song. And I'm not exaggerating to say that. It's like crazy how many people use uh, um, uh, GAC recently selected as the number four most popular wedding song, country wedding song of all time. So it's just had an enduring kind of legacy. And right now it's uh, number two for the consec- second consecutive week on the European country music top 40. So, you know, n- a new version of it, yeah. albeit, but... Um, it's one of those enduring songs. Outstanding. Michael, this was terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks, really Bruce. enjoyed Thanks it. Thanks for absolutely. doing this. All you do is support artists. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Listeners, that's going to do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. And thanks to Wendy. <laughs> absolutely. A real big thanks to singer, songwriter, guitar player Michael Peterson for sitting down with me for this week's show. Check him out on the web at michaelpetersononline.com. Get with him on social media too. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Let him know you heard him and his music on Now Hear This Entertainment. Keep up with Michael online to find out where and when you can go see him perform live. And as I mentioned before, his website has CDs, DVDs, and other merchandise. Plus, you can download Michael's music from iTunes and other online music retailers. I again ask you to please consider supporting me and all that I'm doing with Now Hear This Entertainment by becoming a part of the Patreon campaign. You will find it at patreon.com slash nhte or just go to the show website, nhte.net, and click on the Support Us on Patreon button. This is not a 30-day crowdfunding campaign. It's ongoing, and you choose the level, the amount that you feel you can contribute, and in turn, you help me with some of the various costs that I've had to incur so that I can keep this show going. I'm really grateful for your participation with that. And thank you so much for listening to episode 245. We'll send you out today with another song from Michael Peterson. 
This is the one he just talked about. It's called From Here to Eternity. Well, I did everything I could to get you here tonight without telling you why. Now, girl, if you only would, please hold out your hand. Just close your eyes Well, I've been dying to ask you One burning question Tender 